Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the pubcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'm here with my co-host, once again, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Uh, Clay and I are here at the ADSA uh, scientific uh, meetings here in Ottawa, Canada. And what we're doing this week is going to be a little bit different podcast. We, uh, Clay and his team have selected uh, 10 abstracts of interest that they, uh, they thought was interesting. And we're going to be recording about 10-minute uh, segments of each of those. And we're going to stitch those into a podcast, actually two podcasts. So this is going to be the first of two. So be sure to listen to the second one that uh, comes a bit later. Clay, wanted to ask you real quick. Um, so... I don't know how many abstracts were presented here, but a lot. You narrowed it down to 10. What was the criteria you used in selecting those uh, abstracts? So certainly um, abstracts that would be of interest to our listening audience. That's probably the first criteria. Okay. Um, so abstracts that we you know, think have some take home messages for our audience. Certainly you know, very nutrition focused as far as what we're looking at and, um, and as applicable as possible yeah. for can, our audience. Can you kind of give us a flavor of maybe two, three, four, um, some of the topics that they'll be hearing about? Yep, so there will be, um, there, um, as typical with us, there will be a few related to choline. Okay. Um, certainly, cer certainly we're basic in that. So um, some, uh, a little bit of follow-up work to, to some that were presented a year ago. Um, there are some um, amino acid related topics, um, which is certainly a big interest of ours. And some, a uh, few related actually to, to, the, uh, to the dairy beef sector, mm -hmm. um, as that's, that's certainly growing in, in interest as, a, as another income stream for the dairies. Great, looking forward to that. Clay, our loyal listeners will know that uh, our uh, Pubcast takes place in a virtual pub with real drinks. What they don't know that when it comes time to pay the tab, uh, Clay's got these little short little alligator arms, and I end up having to pay the tab. But that's not going to be a problem tonight. We have a guest with us here, uh, who's who's promised to pick up the tab, right? And, and that's o, uh, Omid McDonald, and he is the founder of Vodcal. And so that happens, we're actually enjoying some Vodkal tonight. So I'm gonna ask you first, Clay, what's in your glass tonight? Um, I have some orange Vodkal. Okay. So could become a new favorite here, supplanting the, uh, the hard cider. Right, do you have hard cider flavored Vodkal? No? Not yet. Not yet? <laughs> yeah. That sounds, that sounds tasty. No, that would be a good one. Uh, and what's in your glass tonight, Omid? I've got the uh, coffee Vodkal cream. Coffee. And this is actually my second chocolate. This stuff is dope, I'm telling you. <laughs> Ahmed, what I'd like you to do is just kind of give us a background. How'd you come up with the idea to, to, to create these drinks? So I wanted to uh, open a craft distillery and uh, never really found an idea that I thought could become a business. And uh, one day my uh, cousin had come back from his uncle's dairy farm and was talking about milk being dumped. I was like, hey, can we turn that into booze? And so with some research, discovered it's been done, going back to the Mongols, Genghis Khan would drink a oh, wow. uh, fermented mare's milk, which apparently wasn't very tasty, but mm. it worked for him. And uh, in the 70s, people actually fermented uh, milk sugar to make uh, fuel for cars. And so I was like, okay, let's see if we can do that. So I tried, had to find a source of, uh, of sugar and was able to do so. Oh, this, is, this is good stuff. I usually drink bourbon, but uh, I'm, I'm staying with this stuff from now on. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so how many different uh, flavors do you have? So well, first we start by uh, making our uh, vodka vodka. That's where we started as the base for all our uh, cream liqueurs. And so we take this dairy byproduct called milk permeate. So after they've taken the, the proteins and the fat of the milk, they have all the lactose left over. And normally that just gets fed to pigs or, or dumped in the digester. So we take that sugar in, ferment it and turn it into pure alcohol, which we make vodka with. And then we take that vodka and blend it with Canadian cream and we make it uh, lactose free uh, as well. And so uh, tonight we're uh, trying our chocolate, which it seems that you really enjoy. I do enjoy yeah, it. <laughs> it is 17% alcohol, so that might explain it. Uh, we have our coffee here, which I'm enjoying. Uh, and both these products, we work with our makers in our hometown of Alma, which is 40 minutes from here. So uh, welcome all you guys to Ottawa. And uh, if you ever have a chance to come out to the distillery, I'd encourage that. And then we have our new orange cream liqueur, which is great for the summer. Also understand that you guys have some sort of a venture going with some uh, uh, folks down in, in Michigan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so as we learned about uh, this permeate, we discovered that this problem of uh, excess lactose is a big one for dairy. As people are uh, eating more cheese and yogurt and drinking less fluid milk, there's more and more lactose left over. So we said, okay, well, what are the big uh, applications? And one of that is fuel. Uh, taking the ethanol and blending it with transportation fuel. So about two and a half years ago, the Michigan Milk Producers Association reached out to us. They were originally interested in vodka and we're like, well, with all your uh, permeate, that would be 47 million bottles of vodka. That's a bit much for us to sell. How about we make biofuel? And so last month we publicly announced this project that we'll be making 2 million gallons of uh, biofuel from the milk permeate. Oh, excellent. Listen, uh, Appreciate you uh, coming here tonight. Can you tell us how um, people, if they want to look into this further, how can they contact you? You have a uh, website? Yeah, you can go to vodcow.com to learn about the spirits or dairydistillery.com to learn what we're doing on the ethanol side. We don't have a full distribution in the U.S. yet. We're working on that. But uh, for all the visitors here at the uh, conference, they could come to our little booth and try some out and pick up a bottle. And then hopefully we'll get distribution in the U.S. in the coming year. Awesome. Thank you for joining us to a successful ADSA. Cheers. Cheers. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. Welcome back, everyone, uh, to the ADSA here in Ottawa, Canada. Joining me today as co-host for this session is Dr. Uh, Clay Zimmerman. Welcome, Clay. And our guest is Dr. Mike Van Amberg and uh, Andrea Zortega from Cornell University. Mike, um, Andrea gave us uh, an oral presentation earlier today. Would you mind uh, just telling us a little bit about him? Oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> So Andrea, uh, he's a fun he's a fun guy. He came uh, to Cornell to be a veterinarian, born and raised in Miami. Wow. Now well, not a lot of cows. Not Miami, Ohio. Yeah, not Ohio. Okay. No, not Ohio. <laughs> and um, anyhow, he uh, he came into the lab and started you know working and helping us with all sorts of things. And he started asking harder and better questions to the point where he got really interested in amino acid metabolism and, and chemistry. And I said, hey, let's give you a project. 
So he did an honors project on amino acid uh, recoveries uh, that has partially been published, but he's extended that a lot. Um, and then he decided not to go to vet school, and I said, well, I'll, I'll upgrade my system for amino acids if you'll stay for a PhD. So here we are. Nice. Nice. Excellent. Very nice. <laughs> Andreas, you gave a uh, presentation uh, today called Abomasial Infusions of Essential and Non-Essential Amino Acids to Evaluate Energy and Amino Acid Utilization, Productive Efficiencies, and Metabolism in Lactating Dairy Cows. Now, Mike, in marketing, we try to uh, communicate in small sound bites. Evidently, you guys don't operate under that same paradigm in, uh, in, in the scientific community. How in the world did you come up with that? Sorry well, about that. You almost didn't get it out there. I was worried about <laughs> no, you, this I was guy. A little worried as well. <laughs> no, it is pretty long. It is. Andreas, tell us a little bit about your presentation today. Yeah, so um, this was a study we ran last year, which was actually pretty interesting. It was very intensive because it was abomasal infusions, right? So we had the cannulated cows and we were infusing um, directly into the abomasal. And so we have been thinking a lot about MP, metabolizable protein, which is both essential and non-essential amino acids. And um, I started reading a lot of Dr. Wu down in uh, Texas A&M, and he doesn't work with ruminants now, but he's very focused on non-essential amino acids and all these functions that the non-essential amino acids play within the body. So I, I got really interested in, in finding out more about that in lactating dairy cows. So with Mike, we came up with this study where we would try to see if we, what will be the effects if we were starting to vary both the essential, non-essential amino acids, a mixture of both of them. So in this study, we infused only essential, only non-essential in a mix of essential and non-essential amino acids. But then we took that a step further and we infused essential amino acids and twice the amount of non-essential amino acids. And the idea behind that was that we know the essential amino acid requirement, but we know that some of that requirement is used for the production of non-essential amino acids. So if we're able to provide that and these essential amino acids do not have to then produce the non-essential amino acids, then we should see an efficiency of use change there. Some of uh, those amino acids being used for other substrates and uh, hopefully we would uh, get a production efficiency there. We unfortunately did not see the production results that we wanted because uh, as we know, we work in, in a dairy cow farm. So we ran out of the conventional corn silage that we were feeding and we had to switch to a BMR, okay. which of course that increased our digestibility, increased our MP supply. So the diet that was supposed to be deficient in protein really wasn't as deficient as we would have wanted it. But although we didn't see the productive results that we wanted, we did see some really interesting metabolic results in which that treatment that had the higher amount of non-essential amino acids, uh, it, was pro it, was, it showed a significant increase in the amount of insulin, which is telling us that all of these amino acids were probably being used for these other purposes, producing other metabolites that then increase the amount of insulin. So what, what stage of lactation? Were the cows? So we started uh, right after peak, so around 60, 70 days in milk. Uh, and then we ended up, uh, the last few cows that ended were probably at 180, 190 days in milk. So mid lactation cows. And how did you come up with the, uh, the, 
the cocktail for the essential amino acids. Yeah, that was not essential amino acids. That was the other the other problem that we had, right? Most of the avomaso infusions that have been done with amino acids, they've always taken casein, milk protein, right, as 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 the basis for how much they were going to infuse. But we know that any amino acid or protein that we feed the cow, it's going to go through a bunch of all these other processes, and whatever ends up in the milk is not exactly what we're feeding the cow. So. We wanted to actually represent MP, the metabolized whole protein, um, and break that down into the individual essential and non-essential amino acids. So we formulated two diets, one that met all of the MP requirements, one that didn't, and based on the difference of MP there, then we knew how much we were going to infuse. And the essential amino acids, that was really easy because the, uh, the CNCPS is able to tell us the individual essential amino acids, but the non-essential amino acids, we had to use some data from our lab where we uh, did multiple time hydrolysis on feeds and microbes in order to come up with a profile for the non-essential amino acid portion of that. So when you, when you infuse the higher level of non-essential amino acids, you reduce the level of preformed fatty acids in the milk, right? Right, yeah, well, that was the other really interesting part. So associated with the whole insulin response, right? We know that insulin, it's a, it's a potent uh, lipolysis. It, lowers the amount of lipolysis, so there was a lower amount of uh, fat that was being broken down. Uh, and as we know, preformed fatty acids either comes from endogenous fat or from the diet. And since all these cows were being fed the same diet, uh, that decrease in the preformed fatty acids was probably coming from that decrease in lipolysis being caused by probably insulin or any other metabolites that was being produced from the non-essential amino acids. So what are the what would be some what would be some takeaways from this work and what are the next steps? Yeah, so I think one of the main takeaways from here um, is that we haven't really explored non-essential amino acids. That hasn't really been done, and I think we showed some really important interactions here between amino acids, all of them, essential and non-essential, and also fatty acids and other metabolic responses. So I think uh, we should start to look into these non-essential amino acids, maybe start to incorporate some of these into nutritional models to see if we can better predict the amount of MP that these cows are seeing. That's one of my takeaways. Mike, I don't know if you have another one. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we just came from another talk where they infused some other non-essential amino acids and saw pretty big responses, right? And they did it with just one amino acid, and they started prior to calving and into 21 days of lactation. So I think, <clears throat> I think we, we, a couple things there, Clay, where should we go? One of, the, one of the positives and the negatives of his study is that we had cows, you know, early on running 52 kilos of milk, right, at four, 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 five fat. So we had these crazy high-performing cows, which we thought should help us kind of pull them apart, but it, it didn't happen that way, probably because the, the diet, that corn silage, made enough more microbes that we were just insensitive to some of our treatments. But I, I think uh, framing it out in the model, and then the other part is, uh, probably starting in a phase where we know there's some true metabolic deficiencies. Right. Right. And maybe in established lactation, that's harder to do. Mm -hmm. So we probably have to back up and, and get in those, you know, that prepartum period through the, you know, 21 to 42 days of lactation. So the, that's where I'd go. So the period, there were 18 day periods, 18 right? day periods, right. Um, 
So how did you determine the length of period? Well, we wanted, we wanted to give enough time for the new treatment because the cows were going to receive this treatment, right? So we wanted enough time between treatments where we wouldn't have that uh, carryover effect from one treatment to the next. And it seemed from the literature that most of the papers, uh, if you provide that adaptation period for up to like 14 days, which okay. is really the adaptation period, uh, that, that was enough to prevent any carryover from the last uh, treatment. So it was 18-day periods. The first 14 days were adaptation, and then 15 through 18, we got the samples. Okay, thanks. But that's, that question, you know, one of the things that we're still struggling with, right? There's no study that's perfect, right? <laughs> and, and it's because they, each cow had a, a unique sequence. Right. Right. So I'm trying to figure out, can we, can we map this out in a slightly different way and see if we can find something? Because I'm still not sure that we've, you know, it doesn't look like we have carryover effect. We've tested for that. But there may be some other aspects to it that we just haven't figured out how to pull the data right. apart yet. Right. Andreas, where are you in your uh, PhD journey? I am almost done. This is, I have a couple more months here. I'm just wrapping up a, a project in the lab with amino acids, of course, and uh, I hope that probably by September I'll be defending my, my dissertation and then I'll move on to my next step. Not sure what it is yet. No? No. Gonna go back into academia, maybe uh, start up with a postdoc? Yeah, I think my plan right now is to start with a postdoc. Um, I, I love doing research. I I love what, what we do, so um, I think I want to keep exploring some more research, doing some different things. As Mike mentioned, I've been working with him for almost eight, nine years, so. Mm -hmm. And I'm really appreciative of everything that, that, that he's taught me, right? But I think uh, I need to see other types of research and, and what else yep. we can do. Yeah. Well, you're a bright young man. You've got a great mentor. I, I'm sure the future is very bright for you, and I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Andreas. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, here to the ADSA. Joining me for this session as uh, my co-host is Dr. Jeff Elliott. Jeff's a technical support uh, person here at Balchem Corporation. Our guest here for this session is Dr. Eduardo Ribeiro from Guelph and his student, uh, Mateo Santos. Um, and, uh, Mateos, I guess you did a poster today. Uh, Dr. Ribeiro, would you mind uh, introducing uh, Mateos for us? Yeah, of course, of course. First, uh, thank you so much, uh, Scott and Jeff, for having us. It's a great pleasure to be here and participate in this uh, no, podcast and conversation. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and Mateus, uh, so we're working at Guelph in the Animal Biosciences Department. Mateus is a master's student in the lab. Uh, he's close to the end. He's finishing this summer and okay. has uh, generated a lot of interesting uh, data uh, during the, the last two years. And is uh, focusing a lot on, on the prepartum period and how that uh, can affect things in the early postpartum period, and uh, I'll let uh, him do the, the conversation here. Yeah, no, sounds good. Before we get started, I should have asked you to maybe introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do there at Guelph. Of course, yeah. So I'm uh, originally from Brazil. I, I did uh, vet school in Brazil, and uh, then I moved to University of Florida to do a, a Master of Science and PhD uh, working with uh, Jose Santos. Jose, of course, yeah. yeah. And uh, when I was finished the PhD, there was an open position in Guelph that fits really well with what I had done so far. And uh, 
decided to apply, got the position there in 2016. Uh, I started as an assistant professor and, uh, and it's been great to be in Guelph. There's uh, a lot of uh, great colleagues there and uh, a very interesting industry around us that support us in the Daria Guelph program. So uh, it's been really good. Um, most of my research is on the uh, reproduction of dairy cows, but um, over the years, I start to see the importance of uh, health and nutrition on reproduction, and then I start to do more and more transition work, a little bit of nutrition, and train with Jose. Yeah. We, you kind of get the dangers in those areas yeah. as well. So, uh, so that's how we work today um, in transition management, um, animal health, and reproduction. And uh, Mateus specifically is more focused on the transition management transition and health. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, Guelph's got a good one. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. <laughs> Mateus, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, research study that you did? Okay. So as uh, Dr. Ribeiro just said, uh, I've been working in with uh, transition dairy cows, uh, specifically looking at uh, preparing uh, dramatic intake. So I think it's quite exciting because last year at the DSA I had the opportunity to present uh, a different uh, poster um, that we were looking at the magnitude of decline in preparing dairy intake. Um, and it's kind of widely known that like dairy cows have depressed under uh, marine intake uh, during the last weeks of gestation. Um, and that directly impacts on like in their postpartum health um, and we were like interesting, like better exploring this uh, and see which one is more important, like the drop of feed intake that a cows undergo uh, during the last three weeks of preparing or like keeping a lower or a high level of dramatic intake uh, during the last weeks of gestation. Uh, and that's what we brought this year. Uh, so we were looking at the level of preparing dramatic intake during the, the last uh, few weeks of gestation. Uh, looking at how it impacts on the transition cows like metabolism and also performance. Uh, and I think we, we got some quite interesting results. Uh, go ahead, explain some of those results to us. We talked this morning, but uh, just give us a quick overview what you found. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, basically we are working with a data set from 273 cows uh, from a research dairy farm. So we have data information, uh, feed intake for all these cows was uh, several like uh, metabolites at different time points. Uh, so we were like interesting, as I said, looking at the preparing dermat intake. So we classified cows uh, like in low, moderate or high level of preparing dermat intake. And then uh, we in fact saw that these cows with like a low level of preparing dermat intake, they start having like this low dermat intake six weeks before uh, they give birth. Uh, and even like after uh, parturition, uh, they still have a low uh, feed intake compared to cows that had uh, a high level of preparing feed intake. Uh, and that was quite interesting as well because uh, we saw that during the preparing cows that were eating less, uh, they were heavier, uh, they had a greater body condition score, uh, which is reflecting their like fatter uh, compared to the other cows, to the other groups. Uh, and also we saw that these cows, uh, they deferred for like their energy balance. Uh, quite interesting, in the last week preparing, we saw that cows with a low level of intake, uh, they either reached like a, a negative energy balance, uh, which did not have to the other two groups. Uh, we also saw that like uh, after calving, uh, they had uh, um, like the most severe uh, negative energy balance. Uh, and we also saw some like 
reflects on that, like on those blood biomarkers and... Yeah, I would, I would encourage the audience to look at that energy balance drop because it was dramatic. But what do you think is the implication of that? Yeah, uh, I think it's a good question. Um, it's a result of like a lower feed intake and also greater body weight. Uh, so that's why the, they had like the, the less negative, uh, the less positive energy balance. Uh, and there has a lot of implications that uh, uh, might be even started like during the preparation before giving birth. So uh, negative energy balance uh, can lead to like immune suppression and then subsequently to development of uh, clinical disease. Uh, even though we did not assess like a disease uh, prevalence in this study, uh, we saw that a cows with a low level of their intake, they also had uh, low rumination time uh, during the preparation. Uh, it's uh, quite nice because then we can see like uh, how we can use this uh, behavioral data, the sensors uh, to try to find a way to to see these cows that are like undergoing uh, a low level feed intake uh, and try to uh, establish like uh, some protocols uh, to avoid the, the consequences because we saw, for example, that are doing the transition, they had uh, higher concentrations of NIFA of uh, DHB. Uh, we also saw that cows with a low level of intake, they had like a low activity of uh, superoxidase mutase, which is an antioxidant um, and like plays an important role in controlling like oxidative stress in transition cows. Uh, so, and also we found that these cows have like lower albumin, which is like a negative marker of uh, inflammation. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's quite interesting to yeah, Matheus has a lot of data on those animals and uh, he's using some interesting uh, methods to try to understand a little bit better what regulates uh, feed intake preparedness because we, when you look at the literature, uh, we don't understand that very well. So when you try to explain dry matter intake with the variables we have, it's very small percentage that we explain. So a lot of that variability, we don't know where comes from and another interesting point from the industry is that people have this notion that preparedness dramatic intake will be important for, for postpartum health but in general people think about this drop right and, and that's what the first study that Matheus presented last year look at it. and it seems to be relevant that drop but people forget that before the drop there's a certain level of intake that is also important and apparently even more important than just the draw. And those two things, they are not uh, very correlated. So you have cows that are eating well and they drop a lot, some don't drop much. You have cows that not eating much and they still drop close to partition, others don't. So there's a lot happening. And I think uh, the two studies that Matheus did uh, help us to understand a little bit more the implication that it has for the transition metabolism and the performance of those animals later on. And I will challenge Mateus to comment a little bit about his third study, which is in commercial farms. Oh yeah, so, uh, that's nice. Uh, and just like mentioned one more thing about this uh, two previous study, uh, as Eduardo said, like most people have been giving attention to like to this decline in dry intake. And in that first study, we, we found out that there was like no effect on milk production uh, for cows that have like a large decline in dry intake to compared to cows that had a moderate decline 
or cows that had like a more stable uh, preparing grammar intake. And in the second study that I just presented here at the DSA, uh, we found out that cows with a low level of preparing grammar intake, uh, they in fact undergo some like consequence of milk production. So they produce less milk and also they produce uh, less energy correcting milk over the first 14 weeks of lactation. And that was at a commercial no, farm? No, that, no, this that's is still the second one. Th that's okay. second one. Still on the research farm. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, talking about the, the, the another trial that uh, we did on a commercial farm, uh, unfortunately, feed intake is something, something feasible to be measured on a commercial farm. So we are trying to explore and like use like this sensor uh, data, like rumination time and activity and saw and see how we can like leverage this data to uh, identify uh, groups of cows that are like in high risk of developing postpartum disease. So in this uh, first and the second study that I, I just mentioned that was conducted at the research station, we saw that those cows undergoing like the large drop in feed intake and also having a low level of preparing feed intake, they ruminate less uh, during the, the last week uh, prior to protrusion. And then uh, we were looking at the rumination, that interval, and also classifying cows uh, into like terciles uh, and see how like uh, they are transitioning uh, and quite interesting uh, in this third study, uh, we found out those cows are like ruminating less uh, during the last week. Um, they undergo more inflammation because we found out like higher levels of haptoglobin, uh, lower levels of albumin. Uh, and in this case, it was also uh, quite nice because uh, we could look at the incidence of disease. Uh, and we found that uh, for much perilous cows, uh, cows that are ruminate less in the last week, uh, they had higher incidence of sorry of clinical disease, uh, uterine disease, non-uterine disease, uh, multiple subclinical disorders as well. So that was quite interesting. So, so there's still a lot of unknowns, but how would you take this to a nutritious and apply it on a dairy? What would be your take-home message? Well, uh, I think. There's so many approaches that we can take it uh, because it is still important to avoid cows having that drop uh, in grammar intake, but looking at like the producer perspective, uh, keeping them at a high level during the preparation seems to be more important because uh, we saw a difference in milk production in that second study. Uh, and also, if you are able to identify these cows, uh, cows with a low level of feed intake, uh, looking at rumination, preparing rumination data and other data as well. Uh, and if we can propose like a, an intervention uh, that we can kind of prevent those cows undergoing through that like uh, uh, impaired metabolism and maybe uh, the consequence in production. That will be another approach. And also in terms of nutrition, uh, if we can work with like uh, supplements, we'd have like a uh, more like antioxidant properties or like uh, inflammatory properties. Also uh, working with approaches where you can increase, uh, improve uh, the feed intake and encourage cows to eat more. Uh, so I think there's multiple approaches. What, what do you think, uh, <laughs> Eduardo? Like? No, I, think, I think you did, uh, uh, you answered very well, Mateo. So uh, definitely uh, promoting that feed intake preparedness seems to be important and uh, some uh, we know a little bit of what controls feed intake preparedness but one 
that we know that has an effect is body condition score. So avoid, avoiding those fat cows a dry off is also uh, important. And in the future, hopefully, we'll be able to develop uh, some tests to classify cows in high risk and low risk of postpartum problems. And then at that stage, we can propose some new interventions. Yeah. Hopefully. An important talk topic indeed, and I want to thank you guys for joining us today. This has been quite enlightening. Appreciate all the hard work you're doing. Thank you oh, again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Welcome back here to the ADSA here in Ottawa, Canada. With me for this session is Dr. Pete Morrow. Pete's a uh, technical service manager for Balchem Corporation. Pete, I understand you are a bit of a neighbor to our next guest here. Would you mind introducing her for us? Yes, this is uh, Faith Reyes. Uh, she uh, grew up about 20 miles from where I uh, currently live and uh, practice from, during my practice days. So uh, one of these small world moments, you have to come halfway across the world to meet your neighbor. Yeah. You know, and understand, Faith, uh, welcome. Glad to have you here that uh, your, your professor was unable to make it, a little bit of flight delays. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about Dr. Van O's? Yes, so I've actually worked with her for about four years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, she's a professor in dairy animal welfare. And my focus has been a lot in adult cows uh, and competition at the feed bunk, but she also expands research with calves as well in the thermal stress portion. And so she is very um, excited in trying to create practical, practical applications for the industry that involve, uh, from a welfare perspective, that we can imp implement to help the dairy producers. So you had mentioned uh, competition at the feed bunk, and that's where I understand your research was in. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yes. So a lot of my research was involving adult cows in that peak lactation, 50 to 150 days in milk and looking at competition specifically at the feed bunk. So in this case, not looking at, at the resting stalls, but feed bunk only, uh, and manipulating that stocking density to see how it impacts competition, and then how does that relate to the feeding patterns that we're seeing, and how, what can we do to think about implications with increased competition and changed feeding patterns. Okay, interesting. So, and so we actually looked at, in my particular study, three different stocking densities. So what we call one cow to one bin, uh, and I say the word bin, in this case, we're working with Incentec bins or roughage intake control bins. And so each cow can specifically be assigned to a certain bin. And this allows us to calculate things like individual cow intake and eating rate and multiple types of feeding pattern variables. And we were able to compare a one-to-one -one stocking density to a two-to-one stocking density, all the way up to a four-to-one stocking density. All right, and did you find it? Is competition good in this case? So in a general sense, we like to see decreased competition. Um, and a lot of previous literature has showed that usually there's a linear relationship. Increased stocking density leads to um, increased competition, if you will. And what the interesting thing we found is actually there was a, the most competition at the two to one stocking density, which was actually higher than the four to one stocking density. And so here, again, we weren't quite sure what to expect. That kind of surprised us a little bit. Um, but I think it goes back to individual cows and their own strategies on how they approach competition. And so perhaps they knew I might not win the competitive interaction to be able to eat at the bunk right now, so she chose to just avoid that situation. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from a production standpoint, how did the, uh, the uh, 
the higher levels of stocking density change the net effect or net dry matter intake? Good question. So in our, in our case, we uh, did a two-hour feed deprivation beforehand to be able to consistently try to control, if you will, for that feeding motivation. And then we tested each of the cows in a one-hour testing period. And so it is a little bit of a shortened. It was, wasn't over across a 24-hour period. But within that one hour, we did see that there was a decrease um, in dry matter intake across, uh, as, as stocking density increased, dry matter decreased. So in, in a linear fashion or? Correct, in a linear fashion, yes. Do you think that it was a significant, you know, maybe statistically significant? Do you think it was biologically significant for milk production? We have the milk production data. Uh, and I did not bring that with me today, so we're still working through some of that. Um, but it was statistically different. The biological part here, I mean, it was a, a, a couple kilograms. Or, but in a general sense, I think it, we do have to keep in mind that it was measured within a one-hour period. And previous re research has shown that over the course of a day, a cow will adjust uh, and try to react, you know, readjust and be able to in intake that feed, even if it's at a different time of the day. And so I also think it'd be interesting to look at this in a longer period to see does the cow change her strategy that if maybe they can't eat feed right away, but they'll go, come back to the bunk later on. Do you, uh, can you look at the stocking density in your treatments and correspond it to a, a stocking density in a, in a traditional barn, whether it be inches of bunk space or? Yes, great question. So the Instantech bin design is a little bit different than a headlock. So it's a, a gate system that comes down. Um, but there has been literature that's showing that there are similar patterns between both systems. And so from a research standpoint, we find it really helpful to have those individual cow intakes. Uh, and so, again, slightly different from a headlock, but there are similarities in what we've seen with the data. And even from uh, the, the stocking density standpoint, the one-to-one -one is kind of been considered the ideal, if you will. Uh, and then that I've seen all the way up to about 120% in a headlock setting and sometimes higher from an anecdotal sense. And so that Incentec bin is about, I think, 0.8 meters um, and for, for space. Uh, and so the 0.6 is usually that benchmark that they're looking for. And so depending on how you d define that at the feed bunk with the headlock system or not, that can vary. But the Incentec system is comparable. So, uh, but this wasn't a factor of crowding the pen in terms of cows still had each had one bed per cow or? So actually in these testing scenarios, uh, because it was only for an hour, we locked them over to just the feed bunk part of the pen. So they weren't able to lie down, they just had a water access oh. and an area to be able to remove themselves from the feed bunk if needed. So you had talked a little bit about cow strategy. I'm just kind of wondering how much of that is it strategy or is it just social adaptation, you know, kind of getting used to each other? That's a good question. And so again, we're, I was only able to look at this one hour period, but I really do think that comes into play, especially over time. We already know that cows have a social hierarchy and that higher dominance to lower dominance is something that we can look at. Uh, I didn't look at that specifically, but the strategy part plays into potentially how dominant an animal is or how um, much she wants to compete at the feed bunk. And so part of my other work was actually looking at individual cow strategies related to how consistent they are. So uh, if an animal is a higher level of competition at the one-to-one, -one, does that remain the same at a two-to-one? So if she's competitive at one stock intensity, does that remain consistent? 
And we actually found that it's a little more complex than we expected. Uh, and so some animals are more consistent, other animals not so much. And we're still working on what, what can that tell us? Because what we really don't know yet is consistency good or bad. Uh, and it's definitely something we're still diving into. Right, yeah. More research needed, as yes. always, yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, kind of another question I've got is, so is, is four different than 50, right? And, and, and do cows kind of find their own little clicks within uh, larger groups and, and how does that, I know that's probably wasn't part of your research, I, I'm sorry, I'm just <laughs> going off the deep end here, but yeah, any thoughts so, on that? Yeah, I guess it's interesting and I guess to clarify too, the, the groups that I was looking at were 16 cows, so four to one being like uh, 16 cows to four bins, so a little bit bigger groups, um, but definitely not as large as what you might see on a commercial farm. And so there has been studies where they may rank cows based on their dominance level. And even when they take out the dominant cow, the most dominant cow, uh, that can still make a difference. But ultimately, you know, they still restructure, right? So each group kind of is fluid, if you will, if, if staying together for a longer period of time, they readjust. And so I think it's something we could look further into is, is this group size making a difference? Um, because it makes a difference for potentially the available space at the feed bunk and the management side of how much space do you need to physically have for a larger group versus a smaller group. But that type of angle is, hasn't been investigated yet. How do you feel that your research impacts the industry in a practical standpoint? Yes, great question. Uh, and I think it helps us provide insight to specifically that individual cow strategy. I think a lot of the data streams today, it, it boils down to an individual cow basis, um, but also knowing how to interpret that and then use it on farm. So understanding that all cows might not approach feed the same way, and how can we change management practices to adjust for that, um, whether that's reducing competition at the feed bunk, is there a way we can feed in that way? Um, I can't don't have a full silver bullet answer today, uh, but I think it helped add to that knowledge and understanding that again, those higher stock intensities still have negative implications and the ideal situation would be that lower stocking density. Okay, what are you gonna recommend to the dairies that you visit? I would say ideally uh, that one-to-one -one stocking density is what we're still working towards. Um, but I also understand that certain farms, you know, they have very high management protocols and they're working within their realms and they can actually utilize higher stocking densities for very positive outcomes. And so I think it's a combination of facility and management when it comes to stocking densities. And there can be success stories at those higher, um, just not recommending that four to one extremely high stocking density. <laughs> that one so far has been negative implications. A little scary at that level. Yes, yes. Well, Faith, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. This has been quite, I should say, actually, Dr. Faith. I understand you got your uh, PhD recently. Um, what, what's your plans uh, going forward here? Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm actually staying within the University of Wisconsin system, working at in the Division of Extension as a statewide dairy outreach specialist. All right, very well. I'm sure you'll be successful. Thanks thank again you. for joining us today. Thank you both. Thanks, Pete. Welcome back to the ADSA Scientific Meetings. Uh, joining me today as co-host is Dr. Marco Sanobi. 
Marcos is a technical service manager at uh, Balchem Corporation, and there's a theme here. We've got a bunch of University of Florida people here. He got his uh, PhD there at the uh, University of Florida. Uh, also joining us is Dr. Jose Santos and uh, Marina Marino. Marino. I got it. I know. I know. That's close enough. All right. Jose, I'm not sure you need an introduction, uh, but uh, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a professor at the University of Florida, uh, where I conduct research and extension primarily and do some teaching. All right. Primarily with dairy cows. Okay. And would you also then introduce your uh, student, yeah. student And Mariana is a second year PhD student. Uh, she completed her master's degree at the University of Florida. She's originally from Brazil. She completed uh, her veterinary degree in Brazil, came for an internship. We retained her for uh, graduate school, and now she's halfway through her PhD program. And I'm sure she's going to tell what she's doing. Yeah, very well. Yes, and well, great segue. Uh, Marina, we're going to, uh, would like to have you talk a little bit about your talk. Understand you're going to give a presentation tomorrow. Give us kind of an overview of what the presentation will entail. Well, the presentation tomorrow, we're going to talk about feed efficiency. We have been working with feed efficiency throughout my master's, where we have explored some important questions. Uh, the way that we check the feed efficiency in dairy cows is through residual feed intake. And residual feed intake is a way of measuring feed efficiency, where we account for important energy sinks, such as uh, milk production, uh, if the cows are losing or gaining weight, uh, the maintenance requirements for these animals, and we account for the cohort they inserted. Uh, so the, the, some of the important questions we have explored before that led us to this uh, present project here was uh, if selecting for these animals, what, it's a problem because now we are selecting for animals that eat less to produce the same amount of milk and no differences in uh, energy or body uh, energy change. And for this uh, study now, we are seeing what makes those cows more efficient than the other ones, because that's a, one of the important questions one to see. Oh, interesting. So can you tell a little bit more about what you are going to present tomorrow? Sure. Um, so for this, for this study now, we have enrolled 117 cows. Uh, we, we, we checked them for 140 days, and they entered in a study with around 61 days uh, postpartum. And throughout this, uh, this time, we have checked them for, in two periods, for uh, feces, uh, urine. We have collected feces, urine for total tract digestibility, ruminal fluid, so we could check the microbiome diversity, as well as some uh, factors in the uh, ruminal fluids, just pH, ammonia concentrations, short chain fatty acids. And we have done hepatic tissue collections for uh, assess mitochondrial respiration, and I'm gonna talk a little bit more of these results. I'm just talking about what we have done for this study. And uh, with all this together, for 140 days, we have daily dry mat intake, milk yield, milk composition twice a week, body condition score, activities, some behavior traits that, that were important for us to check. And um, what we, what we hypothesized was that more efficient cows, the ones that I was mentioned before, that those ones that eat less to produce the same amount of milk, uh, we hypothesized those, those animals, they improved uh, nutrient digestibility, so that's why they can eat less and produce the same amount of milk. And previous studies, we have showed that uh, even though they're eating less, there's no detrimental effect in health 
or reproductive performance or, or uh, body condition score change. So that's why now we, are, we want to see what makes them more efficient. And we hypothesized that nutrient digestibility would enhance, mitochondrial respiration would be bigger or greater for these animals too, uh, change in microbiome uh, diversity, as well as behavior. And this is based on our studies and others too. Um, so I have a question. Yeah, sure. Um, you will explore, or you explore actually uh, mitochondrial yeah, uh, right. respirations. Have you read about that in other species that this could be a possible cause of feed efficiency? Yeah, well, uh, there's some beef cattle studies that they have done that, checking residual feeding take. They did see uh, respiration like we did, which is uh, how much of oxygen being consumed linked with ATP production. And they did see differences where more efficient cows, they have a greater link with ATP production. They also uh, see differences with some gene expressions with genes that being related with antioxidant uh, activities for in the liver tissue for beef cattle. I'm not aware of no one that have done this in dairy cattle. Um, and also the poultry, I know the microbiome uh, they have done in, in gut, but I'm not sure about the mitochondrial respiration. I know more of the beef cattle. And that was one of the reasons we decided to, to see if that would be uh, true as well for dairy cattle. Jose, I know you guys have been uh, profiling the, the genetics here heard for quite some time now. Do you see any genetic similarities uh, in, in, in understanding what, what traits or genetics impact uh, feed efficiency? Yeah, so this is a, a, a component of a collaborative effort with multiple universities that are part of the national evaluation for uh, feed efficiency. So in terms of national evaluation, the trait is called feed saved which is expressed as pounds of feed that you save per lactation on a given cow. So one of those uh, components that make feed saved is what Mariana just mentioned, uh, uh, residual feed intake. So uh, given that a cow will produce the exact same amount of energy corrected milk, she'll have exactly the same change in body tissues. Some cows eat less and some cows eat more. So this trait is already available, so we genotype cattle. Anybody who genotypes cattle will get a breeding value for that. Okay. So they have that. When you buy semen, you can select for sires that result in progeny that is superior for uh, feed efficiency. I guess what's really interesting is what makes this cow produce the same amount as this cow, but this cow eats five, six pounds less feed. Right. So that's still a lot, there's still a lot of unknowns uh, to that. So we know very little about the exact mechanism. So we are exploring, Marianne is exploring some of them, uh, but to be uh, really honest, uh, we have hypotheses, but it's not very easy to uh, uh, confirm those hypotheses right. with real data. Right. So. Yeah, but uh, the information is already available. People can select for that. There are genetic and genomic markers for that available today. And there is a good agreement between uh, genetically superior animals for feed efficiency. And when we measure intake, they are actually, they save feed. So it's, a, it's an important improvement that's been, or it's, a, it's an important, I should say, uh, uh, 
development in the genetics world. Thank you. So coming back to the results that you will present tomorrow, um, I think that you have pretty exciting resulting results. Yeah, well, we have some results that I think we can we can talk about. Like Dr. Santos started talking about that we see the relationship. One of our goals was were to see if, in fact, the cows that we are call we are calling more efficient based on their residual feeding take measurements at the farm when we look at their genomic breeding value, if in fact they're more efficient. And we see an agreement with that. We did see a correlation, so which is a good point because in fact the cows we're calling efficient there, they are being selecting to be more efficient. efficient. That's the first point and we checked it, we could see this. Another point was, okay, what makes those cows more efficient and all the things that I have mentioned before, all the collections we have measured. And we have seen major results was that more efficient cows they have improved rumination per kilogram of dry mat intake and kilogram of NDF intake. They have improved some factors related with ruminal digestibility, such as microbiome diversity differs, where they have a less diverse microbiome, which could mean that they have a, could mean that they have a, micro, a more homogeneous microbiome. We did see that more efficient cows they had lower pH and more concentration of ammonia nitrogen. Which could, uh, which could suggest that more fermentation or more digestibility could be happening in ruminal, but we didn't see differences in total tract digestibility or the mitochondrial respiration with those groups. So with, we have so far, we suggest that more of the ruminal digestibility, or maybe the site of digestion would make more uh, important, it would play a more important role for uh, differentiate more efficient cows and least efficient cows than the other factors based on our results. And in fact, other professors, and I saw a lot the, in the ADSA, uh, they talked about microbiome composition, they did see uh, pretty uh, uh, different differences in uh, high differences in low and, and high residual feeding take cows regarding to microbiome. So I think it's something that we could explore, and then that's where our results were going towards. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned pH pH in the rumen, but also yeah. you have higher butyrate right concentration. Do you have any speculation of that? Yeah, well, um, so we had different periods of collection and the butyrate, actually, when we look at the, oh, the two periods where we have collected, we didn't see more differences. It's just, uh, we have an interaction and it, it wasn't a, a very big of a difference. So the short chain fatty acid concentration, we didn't see a big of a differences. However, um, we didn't measure production, which could very well uh, differentiate among those animals. So we know the concentration, but we don't know we don't know how much they actually produce, which would be nice to see. So we we could see if the the residual feeding take have differences with that. Mariana, you've got a couple years left with your PhD. Are you going to continue to uh, pursue this line of uh, study? Well, I would like to. I really like this feed uh, efficiency and all these studies I have been doing throughout my program. I think they're very relevant, and that's one thing that I would. I would enjoy to keep doing and, and contribute somehow, yeah. So when you do graduate in a couple years, what's your plans? <laughs> Work for Biochem? <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> Done deal. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, she can be in sales too. You see how she just asked for that order? <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate it.
<laughs> I appreciate you guys joining us today. This has been fun. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasure Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash Welcome back to the ADSA Scientific Sessions. With me today as co-host is Dr. Clay Zimmerman and in this corner is Luke Lines. Uh, our guest today is Alex Tebby from Purina Mills. Alex, welcome. Would you mind giving us just kind of a little bit of background about yourself and uh, yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, well thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. I'm a frequent viewer of it. You guys do a great job. And so my background, uh, originally from Southern Illinois, uh, grew up there in, in uh, a dairy populated area. That's kind of where I got my interest. Went to the University of Illinois. Um, far south, like down around Effingham? Yes, yeah. Okay. I live about an hour straight east of St. Louis okay. um, in Clinton County, Illinois. Um, and ski. Yeah, the home of ski. Yeah. yeah it, it, uh, and also the most dairy farms in Illinois, there's not a lot of dairy cows there, but the most dairy farms. And, and uh, I, I got my interest to go off and seek nutrition. I was at a um, meeting for DHI and met my cousins there. And then I got to the University of Illinois. And that's where I was very fortunate to uh, get mentored by George Fahey, um, who really uh, challenged me to go to grad school. Um, versus vet school and I, I really enjoyed nutrition but I liked dairy nutrition and George focused more on pet nutrition so I, I said George what what do I have to do next and he said well go to Jim Drakeley who's a nutritionist at, at University of Illinois as well and we actually him, had him on the podcast earlier oh okay uh, yeah, excellent excellent and he said uh, ask him for a list of names and um, I was very fortunate that Bill Weiss's name was on that list. And I emailed Bill and sent him my resume and said, I'd like to be your, your master's student. And uh, within five minutes, he had replied back to me and uh, said, like let's, let's, uh, let's set up an interview. And um, from there on, the rest is history. I went to Ohio State. I did my master's and my PhD with Bill there. You were up at Worcester? Yep, the whole time. Up, yeah. uh, well I started in Columbus, um, spent two semesters there, um, then went up to Worcester where Bill was located um, at the OARDC research station mm -hmm. and uh, spent four years up there with him um, doing research. And now you're with Purina? Yeah, yeah, so now I'm with Purina. Um, I do tech support and consulting for the company um, I cover Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. Um, so a lot of uh, supporting local local guys as well as some of our own consultants and then I work with some clients myself. Yeah, I'm sure you know the White Rosler. Yes, yeah, yeah. also a, another mentor of mine. It was, it was truly an honor the year I graduated. Um, 
Bill, of course, got inducted into the Hall of Fame, but so did Dwight. Mm -hmm. Two guys I, I look very highly up to. Yeah, you know. Dwight and I were dorm mates back in the day. Oh, really? Many years ago. Yeah. yeah. He's one of my favorite people. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he's the one person I don't have dirt on, so maybe we can talk <laughs> later I don't think here. there is any dirt. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> I agree. So um, you're giving a presentation uh, tomorrow, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of give us what the, the, the objective and, and the content of that uh, talk is going to be? Yeah, so um, it's going to focus a lot on transition cows, um, both the dry period and that fresh period. Um, and I'm really going to focus on talking um, about both periods, but how both of those periods are so influential to that cow's long-term performance. Um, I'm not going to focus a ton about health, is kind of what Bill uh, challenged me to do, but more so on the milk production and, and, and that side of how we can really hone in on the nutrition of dry cows and fresh cows to produce a lot of milk in the future of those cows. Very well. Turn over to Clay and Luke. So Alex, so you know, related to your talk tomorrow, mm -hmm. what you're gonna hit on, will you hit on some specific topics? Maybe, mm -hmm. um, nitrogen amino acid nutrition yeah yeah so that that will be a portion of it um i was only given 35 minutes to talk about a pretty broad and an exciting area but um i'll focus a little bit on protein and amino acid nutrition um really trying to understand more the differences between uh first lactation and and mature cows um, both in that dry period as well as the post-fresh period and how influential meeting their protein demands of those cows are, but also balancing for amino acids. Great, great. And, and the symposium tomorrow yes. is in honor of who? Yes, so it, it is in honor of a truly influential man to the world of applied nutrition, Bill Weiss. So very honored to speak on on his behalf um, he's truly a a very legendary person i think in our field yes. and i might be biased but he i think he is so, he would agree i would <laughs> definitely agree with that absolutely yeah it's kind of kind of interesting i was one of his first grad students and and you were i think his last grad student i, I was the one that made him retire i guess <laughs> <laughs> Luke, now I didn't introduce you yet. Why don't you go ahead and do that? You've introduced it, yourself as, as Bill's first grad student, but uh, what not, else do you do? Not quite Bill's first, first grad student. First, but one of the first. But uh, I think I was either second or you third. You didn't discourage him from retiring at that point. No, <laughs> okay. I must have uh, done okay because he had a lot of grad students after me. So, um, uh, but I'm the, well, I've been with Balcom 11 years and I'm the Eastern Regional Manager for Balcom. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's due to Bill Weiss that I got into this industry and uh, I've been doing it now for 28 years and, and uh, I remember when I first started um, I didn't know anything really about dairy and Bill took a kid that grew up in, in the ur urban setting of Columbus, Ohio and, and uh, taught me a lot so. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he mentioned you when I was a grad student as well Luke and, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, 
when he talked about and I asked about his previous grad students and stuff, he, he said that you were the best one oh, that he's had. So. <laughs> he's a good liar. <laughs> he's a good liar. <laughs> and in all seriousness, he said that, that you were the hardest working. And so, yeah. I may have been the hardest working, but probably not the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he gave it. I mean, it was just, uh, he, he knew that I didn't have a dairy background. And he was like, hey, Luke, I'm going to set you up, you know, manage ATI Dairy Farm. You're going to get that, that dairy experience. And then, you know, the on research at the OARDC, the, the uh, you know, the total collection digestion trial site there. Uh, that was just, I mean, he was just such a great person to work with. He, did, he participated with you. He, he was in there with you. He was milking the cows with you. It was, it was yeah. truly a, a, a great experience. You know, we're quite fond of uh, Bill here at the Real Science Exchange. He's, uh, he does our journal clubs for us. Mm. And uh, we were actually going to record a couple this week. But unfortunately, uh, Bill is uh, he's stuck in Newark, New Jersey, of all places. Yeah. And he's been there a couple days. Um, I, I think I'm going to take a road trip tonight and see if I can go pick him up. So <laughs> you guys are welcome to join me if, if you'd like. I wanted to ask you if you had any favorite Bill Weiss story. Uh, favorite Bill Weiss story. Uh, but before that, I wanted to t touch on one thing with Bill and, and the, it, just how fortunate I was to work with him. Um, Luke, you touched on it, that uh, no matter how busy he was, I mean, I watched that guy do three international trips in one week and probably hadn't slept 12 hours in that week. No matter what, he always had time for his grad students. Mm -hmm. and. And at, there was a, a kind of funny story that I, I talk about sometimes that he prepared me so well. Um, when you're doing your master's, when you're doing your PhD, you have um, your final exam, basically, that you, you take and your committee members ask you a bunch of really hard questions. And to prepare me for that, um, every Friday leading up to those, he would bring me to his office and asked me really hard questions for two hours. And, oh man, I just, there was days that I just was at wit's end and I was like, I'm going to, this guy's driving me crazy, right? But in the end, I was so prepared for those because of his grill sessions that he had with me. And, and, and just always he had time for his, his grad students and, and teaching them um, to be prepared for whatever they wanted to do. So, very thankful for him in that. Um, but, funny Bill Weiss story. Um, How about a car story? Maybe racing out to the dairy barn in one of his, his uh, oh, <laughs> race yeah, cars. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, Bill was a, a very, always a very simple man, but he loved his cars that was his that was his one thing that was his passion his his passion yep and so my i think it was my second year um he bought a uh, porsche a cayman oh my goodness a red one <laughs> uh fanciest car on oardc campus by far <laughs> and uh you know he, like you said he, he would always be active in the sample process and stuff like that so i think it was a saturday you know i come to the office at at 8 a.m. he's already probably been there for two hours and we hopped in his Cayman and went to the OARDC farm, pulled some blood samples, got our, our shoes with some manure on them, hopped back in and drove back and that was, that was the journey. 
But uh, wow. he never let me drive that car, though. <laughs> he, he let me drive his truck. But not the car. I, not the car. I had that same experience, except uh, I was early on in his career. It wasn't a Porsche. It was a, a Firebird Trans Am, a uh -huh. red one, that we raced out to the OARDC facility. And, and uh, he, he went from there, I think, to a BMW to a Porsche. So he, he, uh -huh. he upgraded every year. Yeah. 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 Listen, Alex, you've been a great guest uh, uh, and enjoyed the time together here. Looking forward to the presentation tomorrow. Certainly be there, and, and, and maybe Bill will be here if we can uh, get him rounded up tonight from Newark. Yeah. Give him uh, a fast car. He'll yeah, be up here. Exactly. <laughs> Say, Bill, rent a, rent a Porsche. Rent a Porsche. Yeah. Get up here, Bill. Exactly. So, yeah. no, I really appreciate spending your time, spending time here with you today. This has been a, a good, good one to, to end our first day on. Um, this is, uh, this is the end of day one. Uh, there, there will be another one here coming up. Anyway, appreciate you guys uh, spending some time with us today. Also appreciate our audience for spending time as always. Uh, we hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.